Um, and then I'll talk about the exam after we're done with lecture. Oops, we've already talked about that, right? We're starting here. We went over associative networks, right? The little balls that are all linked together. Okay. Yep, good. Okay. So part two of memory. So we talked in the first half of this uh, topic, this chapter, about um, memory encoding and storage. And that's one source of errors in memory. Sometimes we encode our memories incorrectly, right? So uh, we may, because of influences uh, from our schemas, from our pre-existing knowledge, sometimes we can actually transform what we encode into memory. Uh, sometimes there's errors in storage, although the data on that is uh, limited at this point. And, uh, but mostly what we see is errors in retrieval. That's usually where the, re where the error comes into play. So for example, uh, there was an error in retrieval in that little demonstration we did at the beginning of last class, where uh, I asked you a list of words and one of those words triggered a memory for a word that didn't actually exist there, right? So, um, so that's an error in retrieval. That's where retrieval-based cues are actually influencing uh, what's coming out of memory, okay? Um, so let's talk a little bit about retrieval. First of all, not all retrieval is created equally. Um, there is something known as uh, state-based uh, or state-dependent memory. And um, the deal with state-dependent retrieval or state-dependent memory is that depending on the conditions you're in, when you actually encode the memories, uh, the conditions that you're in when you retrieve them can actually influence the accuracy of those retrievals. And I'm passing out to you right now some data from uh, experiments on state-dependent uh, memory. Three, four, five. So um, one half, the f first one side of this page has these graphs on it, and that's the one that um, you want to pay attention to. So one of the factors that we know influences uh, retrieval is uh, intoxication. So if you are intoxicated when you encode the memories, are you more likely to get better retrieval when you go to retrieve them in an intoxicated state or in a non-intoxicated state? <laughs> in an intoxicated state. So if you look, um, uh, at the bottom chart here, it's not uh, a table, it's not really a chart. Uh, so on the left side there at the top it says encoding condition and it has a placebo condition, a marijuana condition, and then overall. So uh, in this experiment, this is actually run by one of the researchers here was Eric Eich, who I uh, knew at the University of British Columbia. And uh, they ran an experiment using uh, marijuana to see how marijuana affected memory retrieval. And so they had people 
do some uh, memory tasks when they had smoked marijuana, and they had some people do memory tasks when they had smoked a placebo. Aha, uh -huh. so um, we can actually create placebo um, substances of all kinds. Um, one of those placebos can be marijuana. It looks like marijuana, smells like marijuana, tastes like marijuana, but it has none of the active ingredient in marijuana, which is uh, THC. And so uh, they had this person either encode the memories in an intoxicated state with marijuana, or, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> in a placebo state with the uh, placebo. And then what they did is they went back and looked at how retrieval did when the person was either uh, in a placebo group or in the marijuana group. So if you look at the junction of placebo and placebo, if they encoded when they were straight and they retrieved when they were straight, they got back 25% uh, of the words uh, in the memory test. If they encoded in a placebo, and then you follow that over to the marijuana column, and they tried to retrieve in a marijuana in a, when they were high, right? Uh, they got 14% back. So that's not particularly surprising because we would expect that marijuana would um, uh, reduce your ability to retrieve. So um, when you study for your exam, do not come to the exam high. Uh, unless you studied while you were high. So if you look at the <laughs> marijuana condition under encoding, and you follow that line over to marijuana under retrieval, you'll notice that the percentage was 22, which is almost as good as the placebo-placebo condition, right? So, uh, and, but you'll also notice that uh, when someone encoded uh, when they were smoking marijuana, when they were high, when they learned the words, and then they tried to retrieve the words when they were straight, under the placebo condition, they only got 20%. So they actually did worse when they were straight if they encoded when they were high. So, um, But overall, we see that um, retrieving things under a placebo condition is better than retrieving things under an, uh, a marijuana condition. So overall, don't come to the exam high. Um, so uh, environmental conditions is another factor that we know. So that's the chart in the upper left-hand corner of this uh, page. So state dependency from a change in physical circumstances. So what they did in this experiment was they took people who uh, were scuba divers and they had them learn, uh, uh, what did they have learn words, I think, materials, it says. They had them learn materials when they were either underwater or on land. And then they had them retrieve that material either underwater or on land. And so if you look at the dark black line here, that's the one where they learned it while they were on land. And if you look at the retrieval condition axis on the bottom there, um, if, they re if they learned while they were on land and retrieved while they were on land, then that's the dot at the upper left-hand corner, which is a little under 40%. They got back. If they learned while they were on land and they retrieved while they were underwater, if you follow that black line down, you'll see that they only got back a little less than 25%, right? And the same thing happened when they learned when they were underwater. If they were in the same physical circumstances when they went to retrieve it as when they learned it, the retrieval was better, okay? 
And then the third one that we know of is mood. Basically, again, if you learn something when you're happy, you have a better chance of retrieving it when you're happy. If you learn something when you're sad, you have a better chance of retrieving it when you're sad, right? So um, sad, sad is actually a little better than happy, happy. Yeah, happy, happy, joy, joy, sad, sad, not so good. I don't know. Uh, generally, um, you know, these are, you know, relatively small effects. I mean, well, not in, in the happy. Well, they're, they're pretty strong. Uh, percentage is actually larger on the mood dependency. The mood dependency has a larger influence than the uh, intoxication or the uh, physical circumstances. So, yeah, so if you uh, were really happy when you were studying for your exam, try to rev yourself up before the exam. Have somebody tell you a bunch of jokes, watch some comedy, right? Get yourself in a happy mood. I don't know. Um, so overall, you know, basically the fundamental thing here is that um, your retrieval is facilitated when you try to retrieve information in the same circumstances as you encoded it. Um, so, you know, if you're in a brightly lit room when you take an exam, you probably want to study in a place where it's brightly lit rather than dimly lit, for example, right? Um, it's not a bad idea actually before an exam to do some studying in the room where you're going to take the exam. Right. Um, these are all sort of these differences are relatively minor, but they kind of they can add up really. Um, so think about these next time you take the exam. But please, if you're in the habit of being intoxicated while you study, do not drive to school in an intoxicated state. I would suggest you drive to school early and become intoxicated. No, I know. I generally recommend not being intoxicated during the exam or being intoxicated during studying. Generally. <laughs> um, uh, did you have a question, Remy? I'm sorry. These experiments have been done with um, mostly what's called semantic memory or declarative memory rather than um, emotional kinds of memory. Yeah. So this is memory for information, yeah. yeah. Flashbulb memory is an entirely different phenomenon. Um, the other thing that we know has an uh, impact on retrieval are what are known as primacy and recency effects. So um, generally, when you learn things in a list of items, uh, how well do you learn the things in the middle of the list? Really badly. <laughs> You remember the stuff at the beginning and the end of the list. But the question then is, um, what's better? You know, is your memory better for things at the beginning of the list, or is it better for things at the end of the list? Well, the answer turns out to be both, yeah. And it depends. It depends on how long uh, you have between learning and retrieval. So if you learn something and then go to retrieve that information quickly afterwards, you will tend to have uh, what's known as recency effects. So you'll remember the last items in the list. However, if you learn something and then go to retrieve it a week or two later, you'll tend to have more of a primacy effect. 
So the time between learning and retrieval will affect whether you have primacy or recency uh, effects more strongly. So uh, if you're going for a job interview and you know that they're going to make a decision immediately afterwards, maybe it's to your advantage to take the last job interview slot rather than the first job interview slot. I don't know if that's true. Um, I don't know if they've done any research on it, but all, all things being equal, assuming that all the candidates are equal and that's the only thing they have to go on, you may uh, get a better result from the recency effect here. Okay, um, now, as I said, um, not all retrieval is created equal, nor are all memories created equally or sort of stored and recalled in the same ways. Um, so when we break down memory into categories, we think of it as two specific kinds of memory. Um, explicit memory, and explicit memory is also known as uh, declarative memory. And um, explicit memory requires conscious effort to remember it, okay? It tends to be for things that we learn or that we experience. So, your, the, the memory for things that you're learning for the exam is stored in explicit memory, okay? Um, this is also uh, broken down further into uh, semantic and episodic memories. Um, semantic being more for things that we learn, information that we learn. Episodic being more for experiences that we tend to have. Um, implicit memory is also known as procedural memory. And this is memory um, for things that we actually do physiologically, generally. So riding your bicycle, right, is an example of uh, implicit memory or procedural memory. You know how to do that, right? And you don't need to use conscious awareness to recall it. When you get on a bicycle and start riding, you don't have to think to yourself, okay, now what do I remember about riding a bicycle? And uh, do I press on, which pedal do I press on first? And um, how do I keep my balance, right? These are all things that happen without any conscious awareness. Encoding is slightly different for each of these. Um, to get explicit memories encoded, you have to do a lot of work to do it. You have to study. You have to spread your studying out over a long term. Um, you have to study and restudy. You have to study and test yourself. Um, you have to do a lot of rehearsal, right? Um, maintenance and better than that, elaborative rehearsal, remember? Um, whereas implicit memories tend to be encoded relatively automatically, right? When you learn to do something, you know how sort of the more you practice doing something, the better you are at it? That's because your procedural memory is getting better for how it works, right? 
and it's able to be retrieved much more easily. Um, but you don't have to um, you don't have to consciously sort of sit there and rehearse those things over and over in your memory. Um, you just have to actually do the things, and it becomes part of procedural memory. And two uh, brain uh, structures are going to be important for each of these types of memories. The hippocampus is going to be important for uh, explicit memory. So um, remember the hippocampus is in your limbic system and it is what is responsible for consolidation of memories. So these um, elaborative um, long-term potentiated networks of memories is what your hippocampus is working on. Uh, whereas the cerebellum uh, tends to be more involved in procedural memory. Remember the cerebellum is the part that sits sort of on the back of your, underneath your occipital lobe on the back of your brainstem. And uh, it's involved with uh, muscular coordination, for example, movement, right? Uh, no, the cerebellum is more associated with um, coordination and um, uh, coordinated muscle movement, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the example here is ping pong, and they haven't, you know, they played a lot, right? And you're pretty good at it, and you didn't do it for a year, and then you go, hey, let's go see if we can't play ping pong. And you're like, oh, no, I haven't done it for a year. I won't be any good at it. And then, you know, after a few hits, you start getting better and better, and pretty soon you're back to where you were really quickly. Yeah, exactly. Good example. Oh, really? I haven't heard that. I've heard this sort of notion of kind of muscle memory. Um, there's no evidence that your muscles have any kind of <laughs> memory function, but it's more likely that it's um, involved in implicit memory in the cerebellum, yeah? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that's the memory coming in. And so when you see a sports player, you know, when you're and who are and how many of you watch the Super Bowl, by the way? So uh, maybe half. Okay, good. The rest of you were studying. You slackers that were watching the game shouldn't have been watching the game. No. Um, so, you know, you watch these people on the field, and it's just amazing what they do, right? Um, that they can be so coordinated, you know, and like the, you know, I can't believe like the quarterback um, has, you know, what, about maybe three or four seconds to throw the ball, and he knows exactly where the player is going to be when he goes to throw the ball, even though that player is all moving around the field in all different places, right? Um, this is... The, this is the benefit of sort of this intense kind of practice of, you know, doing it over and over and over and over. Yeah. In a way, that's kind of conscious um, uh, 
effort that's kind of effortful processing but uh, you don't have to think about it is kind of what the deal is here you know you still have to do the practice you just don't have to think about it like you do with um, maintenance rehearsal where you're trying to link concepts together and stuff like that um, okay so let's talk about uh, what happens when uh, memory goes bad when uh, which is not the same as a bad well it is kind of the same as a bad memory um, because memory failures involve um, uh, forgetting um, the idea that we forget over time what we've learned. Um, and what we tend to see is uh, we have this, what we call this initial period of forgetting. And it lasts typically about three to four years after you've learned something. Your memory for that thing will decline relatively steeply in that three to four years. Uh, in the case of the exam that you took, um, your memory probably declined three to four minutes after the exam, steeply. Um, maybe, maybe not. I hope not. Um, and what we tend to see is that as you go longer and longer after learning something, the errors tend to increase. Um, and so the question then becomes, what happens? What's the actual process involved in this memory decline or this decay of memory? It seems like memory just kind of, you know, falls apart, right? Uh, what ha you know, do our neurons die? Um, or is it that we lose connections, right? We talked about those associative networks of memories. And yeah, so this idea that uh, maybe the connections between these, these associations between these nodes of memories uh, die off somehow. There doesn't seem to be um, much evidence to confirm the notion of um, decay of memory. That is, that neurons die or even that we um, uh, necessarily lose these associations. Uh, what the evidence tends to support better is the notion that we have, uh, we, we suffer from what's known as interference effects. And um, what happens is information that we learn either before we've learned something or after we've learned something, that either prior information or later information interferes with the memories uh, that we're learning at the moment. And so, um, so that'll, that's what'll become known, what you'll read, what you read about as uh, retroactive and proactive interference. In the case of proactive interference, something that you learn afterwards Will tend, to inf will tend to interfere with information that you learned earlier. In the case of retroactive interference, something that you learned earlier before you learned something else will interfere with that something else, right? And it generally is strongest when things are in a similar domain, okay? So if you're learning, say, a couple of different languages, Right, and you learn uh, something in French, and then a little while later you learn something in Spanish. When you go to recall that French later on, you may get some Spanish words mixed into it. Right, um, proactive interference. Okay. Can you say that again? Proactive is interfering with something you've already learned. It's That's right. Something learned later interferes with something previously learned. 
Retroactive is where something previously learned will interfere with something that you learn later. Could be. It could be, yeah. It could be. Or they just like to mold them to, you know, their own desires or the way they want to do things. Yeah, they won't have preconceived notions. I think it's a little bit different, but um, yeah, it, it could be. Um, now, proactive and retroactive interference. Um, basically, here's what happens. Um, if there's a period of time where you're able to actually do that consolidation of that information, then we tend to see less interference effects. But if you learn something immediately after you've learned something else, we'll see more interference effects. Remember, after you've learned something, your brain has to form those long-term potentiated associative links. And if it doesn't have a chance to do that, then this later information may supersede that, or uh, vice versa, the earlier information may supersede it, yeah? So that really like, okay, cool when you're in class and you go home, you plan on doing like watching TV and then you go back to the homework, like, like why is it difficult sometimes like figure out what you did earlier? Um, yeah, it could be, yeah, so the, so the, the idea here is if you're and then you go watch some TV, and then you try to go back to the homework. You can't remember what you did on your homework earlier, yeah. Um, so what I generally recommend is when people take breaks when they're studying, I do recommend you take breaks while you're studying, by the way. Don't try to study it like you know three or four hours at a time because it's not um, very useful. So study for half an hour, 35, 40 minutes. Take a break, five, 10 minutes and just stare out the window and look at the trees or get a glass of water and don't do anything that's going to have you do any kind of rehearsal, right? Any kind of memory functions, right? Just relax the brain, let the brain do its work in creating these um, associative networks, yeah? Can I ask a question? About yeah. That yeah. That question about the VCR, is that, was that retroactive? Uh, let me look at it. So there's a question on the quiz, number seven. Yeah. Yeah. When Boris got a new VCR, he sold his old one to a friend. One day his friend asked him to program the old VCR, and Boris found that since he had learned how to program the new one, he no longer remembered how to program the old one. This is an example of proactive interference. Okay. Yeah, they're easily confused. Yeah. Um, he remembered. Um, he remembered how to program the new one. He forgot how to program the old one. Yeah. 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 are negatively affected by things you learn later. <laughs> yeah, this is confusing. Proactive interference, decrease in accurate recall of previously learned information as a result of... It's as a result of previously learned. Um, it's newly learned as a 
That's what I don't understand. Yeah. Okay. So the book says proactive interference, a decrease in accurate recall of information as a result of the effects of previously learned or presented information. Proactive inhibition. That's weird. Let me make sure I don't have it wrong. Yeah, if you look at figure 9.13, that's, that's correct. See, uh, see, figure 9.13, it has uh, study French at 9 a.m., uh, study Spanish at 9 p.m. Then the attempt is to recall the Spanish, that is to recall the later learned information. The previously learned French interferes with the recall for the Spanish later on. Yeah, it's... <laughs> What's that? No, that's proactive. I think the definition is wrong in the text. Uh, proactive interference or proactive inhibition is a decrease in accurate recall. See, of information, they need to say whether it's, you know, previously or later learned information as a result of the effects of previously learned or presented information. Okay, so that's correct in the text. Yeah, it's easier to remember what it is at the bottom of the um, Proactive in the, in the margin says a decrease of inaccurate recall of information as a result of the effects of previously learned or presented information. That's correct too. It's just that um, a decrease in the accurately, accurate recall of information learned later as the effects, uh, because of the effects of previously learned information. Okay, so yeah, it's not it's not particularly clear. So uh, how can I make it clearer? Yeah. I think the diagram is easier to understand than text. Uh, I'll see. I'll see. Probably. Yeah, I'll look at the um, I'll look at the results of the quiz and see. Is yeah is influenced by the previously learned information. Yeah. Right. So on the test, it would be retroactive. Isn't that the question? He's having a hard time recalling what happened earlier because of something he learned after the fact. No, he's, right. he's not, not being able to reprogram. The PCR they gave away, so it's right earlier. His earlier programming it was effective because he learned how to program his new. 
Oh, is it? Uh, let me look at it again. When Boris got a new VCR, he sold his old one to a friend. One day his friend asked him to program the old VCR. So Boris is trying to recall the earlier learned information. Uh, and that since he had learned how to program the new one, he no longer remembered. Yeah, that, uh, that is um, retro. I'm sorry, that is retroactive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we didn't. No, we didn't because it, it was still, conf it is still confusing in the book. The book is, the, it's poorly written because it just says uh, interference in recall of information, not previously learned information or later learned information. That's the problem. Yeah, 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 I recommend those, yeah. Yeah, the diagram is much better than the text. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, hopefully that's clear, and uh, if not, we'll get to it and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so interference tends to be the strongest influence in um, memory decline um, rather, from our, the evidence that we have rather than sort of decay over time. Um, so what tends to work well is if you keep learning in the same domain. If you keep reading, if you keep um, keep your uh, your learning continuing, and not sort of stop learning and um, and begin learning a bunch of other stuff, right? Mix it up, right? Keep keep that going, but allow there to be breaks in between. So if you're studying for one subject that's similar to another one, put those breaks in there so you can do that um, elaborative rehearsal. Um, okay, so. The uh, next form of forgetting that we'll talk about is a little bit more extreme. Um, and it's relatively rare by comparison. Uh, amnesia um, occurs when someone loses memory entirely for things they have either done previously or things they do from a certain point in time onward. And it generally comes in these two forms, uh, anterograde amnesia means that um, after a certain point in time, someone fails to be able to um, encode, store, or retrieve new memories. Now it's kind of unclear. Um, the, the memories are probably encoded because they can oftentimes be recalled quickly thereafter. Uh, but uh, what will happen is after 10, 20, 30 seconds, maybe a minute or two, uh, the person won't be able to remember what happened, okay? Um, retrograde amnesia is a form where, uh, that you're probably mostly familiar with, which is the idea that someone loses memory for everything that's happened previously. So they have no uh, memory of events uh, that they formed uh, earlier. Um, and that's typically, I think, what most people associate with amnesia rather than uh, anterograde amnesia. Anterograde's um, uh, relatively yeah. rare. Uh, Alzheimer's is entirely different from either of these. Um, with Alzheimer's, what will tend to happen is memory, in terms of memory, memory will tend to decline for recent events, and that decline will tend to um, go back through time. You know, they'll be able to remember their childhood and their, and their young adulthood, and then after a while they won't remember their young adulthood anymore, and then after a while they won't remember their adolescence, and then after a while they won't remember their childhood. 
Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's a little bit different too because uh, there there is actually damage going on with the plaques. Um, I don't. I haven't seen the data for actual holes, but um, I do know that plaques form and those may damage the neurons and cause them to die. I don't know about holes. Yeah. Um, yeah, we generally don't consider that amnesia unless we know that there's a particular traumatic event that occurred that may have, uh, you know, what'll happen is, normally what'll happen is um, when somebody was a teenager, if they had amnesia, retrograde amnesia, where they forgot everything that they learned earlier, they wouldn't be able to do mathematics, they would have trouble with language, they'd have all kinds of, um, they have all kinds of difficulties that would show up really quickly. What we typically um, think about when someone can't remember earlier times in their life is that there's some, some other psychological process going on other than sort of amnesia, um, interference most likely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so this is the notion that there are what are called repressed memories uh, for some earlier traumatic event. And this is um, an idea that's persisted since uh, uh, Freud's notion of defense mechanisms. Um, it, although Freud didn't talk about memories per se, he talked about the idea that we want to repress the sexual, con the awareness of the sexual conflicts. Um, but it's still the sort of this notion that um, that we can actively repress these memories, and the data is mixed on that. Um, uh, for one thing, we know that um, flashbulb memories for traumatic events are particularly strong, are particularly uh, persistent. They last a long time, and they're very vivid. And so the argument then would be, uh, can those um, wouldn't those flashbulb memories be particularly available rather than unavailable? Uh, and um, then there's an argument that, uh, that says uh, it may be a process of emotional inhibition, you know, that, um, that you may want to inhibit the emotional responses that you had at the time. And since emotion, mood, is associated with recall, good recall, then if you don't experience those same emotional states, then your recall isn't going to be as good. Um, there's all kinds of theories, but there's really no good um, uh, evidence coming down in favor of one or the other. Yeah, question. So can your mind train itself to block things out? Uh, you, you can. Uh, we'll talk about this when we talk about memory um, uh, error, when we talk about um, oh, drug deal. Um, Somebody make somebody somebody buying something over there. Um, so, so uh, what was I saying? See, that's why. So I say, turn off your phones when you come into class. So the idea here is um, that we kind of can be trained to block things out. It's a little more complex than that. Let me get into that when I talk about um, distortions and fabrications of memory. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about the lost in the mall effect, you'll see how this works. Yep. Yep, Remy? My daughter and I were trying to figure out events here in grade memory would be an example of 50 dates. 
Yeah. Good example. Yeah. So um, the movie, what's it called? Fifty First Dates. Fifty First Dates. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a. It's not a particularly great example of anterograde, but it's not a bad example of anterograde amnesia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, typically, uh, with anterograde, the memory will own she, like she wouldn't have the memory of previously in the day. Like she wouldn't have in the evening her memory for what happened in the morning. It would typically, the memory only persist for about a minute or so. Um, so um, yeah, but it's a, it's a, that's a reasonable example, yeah. Um, let's take a break here. It's about uh, five of. Can you come back about five after? And um, we'll talk about dissociative fugue, which is an interesting phenomenon. Yes. So, um, oops. Did you move? Did you put your head back? <laughs> oh, just push that. Thanks. So, uh, dissociative fugue is an is a is an extremely rare condition. Uh, if um, it's one of the conditions that we talk about when we teach um, psychopathology or abnormal psych, and uh, dissociative fugue has to do with um, uh, a person who generally after some stressful event or some kind of trauma uh, has uh, retrograde amnesia and they travel somewhere. And so they actually will travel somewhere and then um, they'll be functioning there and there's no memory of their functioning and then they'll kind of wake up one day and they can't remember their childhood, they can't remember their past, they can't remember who they are, how they got there, what they're doing. Um, there was a case of this, I think, uh, maybe just about a year and a half ago. Uh, a fellow from Olympia who left to go to his mom's house in Canada, and he was going to stop in Bellingham at his aunt's house or something. Uh, in, which is on the border of Canada in Washington State. And he never made it to his aunt's house. And um, f as far as his family knew, he disappeared. And uh, six weeks later, he um, essentially woke up. That is, he started forming new memories um, on, the, on the street in, front, uh, in Denver in front of a, uh, in front of a building. And... Um, basically had to get to a hospital. He got to the police and got to a hospital. And uh, he had no memory of who he was. They tried a couple of different methods to try to get him to get his memory back. They tried hypnosis. They tried uh, drug treatment that's used for that. And he actually recovered some false memories. He recovered some memories that he lived in New York City and that he had um, a wife and two children and that they were killed in a car crash. Um, but he didn't know their names or um, you know where they were, how to get in touch with them, and so he uh, he went on the he went on the news. Uh, you know the police got him on the national news, and that wound up getting into Canada. And his mother recognized him on the national news and said, um, "You know what? This is my son." And so uh, uh, he had to you know learn who these people were in his life now. He was engaged. He was living with his fiance in Olympia. 
Um, he flew back to Washington, um, you know, met her for the first time, essentially, um, even though they had been living together for years. And uh, so it's very, as you can imagine, very traumatic and very, um, uh, um, dis very disturbing for a person who has this, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, as you can imagine, your identity is very much tied into your memories of who you have been and what you have done, right? And when you lose that, then essentially your identity is thrown into crisis. You don't know who you are, where you belong, how you fit into the world. Yeah, very disturbing. I'm glad you mentioned that, yeah. Um, first question here. Uh, were they able to determine or if they were to there, there was uh, no, there was no evidence of any sort of extreme trauma. Uh, he apparently lost his car. They don't know where his car went. Um, he, uh, you know, he didn't have keys. He didn't have a wallet. He didn't have anything with him. Uh, I don't think there was like, you know, a big bump on his head or anything. Uh, but of course, it may have. He may have had a trauma, you know, six weeks previously, and it had uh, healed by then. Yeah. Did he know? Did they find out what he was doing for six weeks? No, they don't know, you know, if he was in Denver for six weeks, he may have been traveling around. Um, there's really no knowledge of uh, where he was. The, um, uh, the only thing that um, his fiance said that was that he was under extreme amount of stress uh, before he left for the trip. And that's typically what we'll see. It's some sort of extreme stress or, or uh, trauma. Do you have a question? Yeah. It's really unknown, yeah. It's uh, very poorly understood, mostly because it's uh, so rare, really. Um, yeah, question? Is it, is the view different than people who get bumped on the head and don't remember their family, their family, their Because I saw a TV show the characteristic with dissociative fugue is that the person goes on a journey afterwards, yeah. Um, they wind up in some other place, um, typically, yeah. So um, I want to show you a brief uh, film clip. This is from a documentary called uh, Unknown White Male. And um, this is uh, a true story. Uh, Douglas Bruce uh, lived in New York City. Uh, he was a stockbroker. He uh, quit the stockbroking business and had gone to school for photography. And uh, one day, he um, uh, the last thing that anybody had seen of him was uh, he was home in the evening. And then the next day, he shows up at the police station uh, with no memory of who he is or where he is or how he got there or what happened. Uh, and so this, I like this clip because, first of all, it shows how disturbing it is to, to have this case. Uh, but again, it's very rare. But it also has some good um, interjections by uh, Daniel Schachter, um, who you uh, read in your textbook, is a major researcher in memory. So he's got some good um, uh, things in there that are related to what you're learning here. So um, let me launch this off. and. I think it's a, it's a little bit long. It's about 12 to 15 minutes, I think, so uh, hang in there. How much Thanks.
the gray switch. Yeah. I think that is, yeah. These memories away, what would be left? How much is our personality, our identity, determined by the experiences we have? And how much is already there, pure us? friend of mine, Douglas Bruce, had mysteriously suffered total amnesia, losing all knowledge of the past 35 years of his life. I decided to make this film. I wanted to know what had happened and why. How had those close to him been affected? What did memory loss feel like and how had he coped? His astonishing story begins in New York City on July the 2nd, 2003. The only thing that I know is that um, I was on the phone to uh, a friend of mine at 8 o'clock at night and he said to me that I had no real plans to go out, I was going to stay at home. He came and knocked on my door at 7 o'clock in the morning and to see if I wouldn't have breakfast and he rang and rang and said that there was no one there. So sometime between 8 o'clock at night and yeah, it's seven o'clock in the morning, I must have left the house. As to that particular night, no, no, no one knows anything. Doug had entered the initial stages of a particular type of amnesia a very rare and bewildering medical phenomenon called the fugue state. Unaware of himself, he must have left his apartment and entered the New York subway system. The fugue state is a, a very interesting condition in which an individual does not have the ability to retrieve information about their past. They may not even know who they are, but what makes it so interesting is that they're, they're not aware of that at the time. They may be traveling or functioning in some way for hours, days, even weeks, not knowing who they are, but until they're put into a situation where somehow this is brought to their attention, they're unaware of it. At the moment they become aware, then the, the fugue state per se is broken and they realize that they don't know who they are. So, you know, made me feel very uneasy. And then, you know, I didn't know where I was going. So 
Um, and, I, and suddenly, you know, I thought, you know, where have I just come from? And this is, yeah, it's, you really struggle with that. And, and then I suddenly realized, you know, I didn't know who I was. I was scared. I mean, it's not anxiety. It's you're scared. You're in a place where you don't have any bearings or um, you, you don't know anything. It's, it's frightening. It's, you know, quite simply frightening. exactly what happened to cause that amnesia. For example, after a head injury, um, it would be very common for someone to be unable to remember the few minutes prior to the injury. And then, depending on the extent of brain damage, uh, the retrograde amnesia may reach back a few minutes prior to the event, uh, to in extreme cases, uh, years or decades prior to the event. However, in, in the very rare cases, you may have a retrograde amnesia that wipes out not only all individual experiences, but all knowledge of one's past. Suddenly, Doug became aware of something over his shoulder, the backpack. He searched its contents, two <coughs> sets of keys, a strange vial of liquid, mild painkillers, a Latin American Spanish phrase book, and a map of New York, but nothing that linked him to who he was. With nowhere else to go, he turned himself into the police. We normally get the runaway, a lot of runaway kids. They come back a couple of days later, or we find them roaming the streets, or uh, you get the elderly. They walk out, they forget to tell someone that's regular, normal. Um, someone coming in, losing their memory, not knowing who they are, what their name is, anything at all, that's, I've never had that, and it's very rare. They say to me, what, what do you, uh, yes, can we help you? And I said, uh, yeah, and I, you know, I, I don't know who I am. He didn't have any kind of identification on him, nothing. So we thought that he got robbed. But he didn't get, he wasn't struck, he doesn't remember being robbed. He remembers being around, he doesn't remember being hit at all. They sort of asked me, he said, you know, do you take drugs? And I think, no, you know, I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I don't think so. You speak with an English accent, you must be English. And so, they looked, flicked through the book and hadn't seen it. And then there's one guy who, who sees the number and he goes, yeah, I, I think I have something. At last, someone who might be able to identify him. And then the officer comes out, of, of, that had the phone, comes out and, and I say to him, well, 
you know, what, you know, what happened? And, and she said, well, he, she doesn't recognize you. Doug's hopes were dashed. Who was the woman on the other end of the phone? Why did Doug have her number? And why didn't she recognize him? We just didn't know what to, do, what to, what to think about what happened to him. Um, maybe it was just a freak, a freak case. And I, I guess it was. <laughs> Son degree of memory loss is very common, whether we want to call it amnesia or not, as a result of aging, Alzheimer's disease, head injury, and so on. Extreme forms of memory loss that we would, to which we would give the term amnesia, where one is so impaired by the inability, let's say, to form new memories in the case of anterograde amnesia that you can't carry on with your life, are relatively rare, but occur regularly as a result of various forms of, of neurological insult. Retrograde amnesia, where someone has a complete wipeout of their memory for their entire past, are extremely rare. Those are the rarest of all kinds of amnesias. So we go off in the ambulance to the, to the hospital, and I walk in the hospital, and that's terrifying because you've got people who, I mean, cut open every word, people are um, in comas, in, you know, under drips, uh, drug addicts who are just screaming, um, uh, people that are maimed, drunks, everything. I mean, it's, you know, the worst process in the emergency room of Coney Island Hospital. Without a name, the nurses wrote unknown white male on his chart. They kept asking me my name, and that's really the last thing that I wanted to be asked, because, you know, I didn't know. Frankly speaking, first time in my life, I've never seen such kind of amazing uh, clinical case like uh, Douglas. That was uh, known uh, for me only from movies, actually. Only from the movies? Only from movies, and from my textbook. What got me interested in him, he was a very good-looking man with a peculiar <laughs> English accent and very, like, very polite, very, very polite. A lot of people were coming in to just to look at him because it was so unusual to have a young, handsome man in the middle of the summer <laughs> and not to know who they are, where they're from. And he didn't look like he was an alcoholic, drug addict, very neat, very well-dressed, um, just totally out of it. There are three major types of long-term memory. Episodic memory, that's memory for unique experiences that happened in a particular time and a particular place. Semantic memory, that's our general knowledge of the world, uh, the kind of memory uh, that we acquire through learning in school, facts, language, that sort of thing, concepts. And the third one we call procedural memory, and that's uh, memory for skills, memory for uh, knowing how to do things, as opposed to knowing that something is, is so. So learning to ride a bicycle, uh, learning to play a sport, learning to type, these are all examples of procedural memory. The hospital ran every test. They found that his blood was completely clean of drugs or alcohol and that the vial in the backpack was medicine for a dog. Firstly, when we um, have such kind of cases, we would like to rule out organic, organic causes, meaning, meaning tumors or uh, bleeding into the brain. Uh, but as far as I know, the cat scan was normal, 
and further evaluation in immuning, including outpatient neurological uh, evaluations, gene uh, turbulence that could have explained this amnesia. Some small uh, pituitary tumor was found, but it doesn't explain amnesia. Amazingly, they found a small tumor growing on Doug's pituitary gland that had probably been there since birth. It was not deemed a health risk and was ruled out as a possible cause of the amnesia. The small bumps on his head could have triggered it, but it was unlikely. With no conclusive clinical evidence, he was transferred to the psychiatric unit. So they move me to the psychiatric ward and, and, and everything gets put into a locker and everything. And, um, and then they say, can you sign this? And I, I sort of pick up the pen and, you know, there's this sort of thing that just goes like this and I just went like that. And I said, look, I can fucking, you know, I, I'm somebody, I have a signature, you know. And, um, and I, I couldn't believe that they hadn't asked this, you know, earlier of me. And so I'm really pissed off with them, you know. It's, it's, it's something really hard and I'm trying to, because my, my, my signature is a scrawl, basically. It's, it's just totally illegible. And then I realized that, um, you know, that my first letter starts with a D, you know, and they've been calling me Johnny all day. They asked me, well, what do you want to be called? And they said, you want to be called John? So I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. And so, and I, I suddenly realized, I said, look, you know, I, I, I am, I'm somebody. I think what this kind of, this kind of observation tells us that he couldn't sign his name is that it's not a complete wipeout of memory across the board. And we have to come back to the idea that there are different kinds of memory. So clearly what's most affected here is episodic memory. That is, does seem to be wiped out across the board. Procedural memory, or memory for skills and how to do things, typically in these cases, is preserved. So uh, you hit that uh, gray switch again. I'll recommend that uh, if you're interested, you. You can pick that up at a video store and watch it, um, watch the rest of it. And really the rest of the movie is, um, traces his attempts to reconnect his current life with um, all of his prior existence. So he goes and meets his family, for example, for the first time um, and has to become acquainted with them, friends that he's had, things like that, so yeah. Um, I imagine that they did take fingerprints. I imagine since he uh, presumably had never been involved in any criminal activity that there wouldn't have been any record of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So far, um, if the Department of Homeland Fascism has their way, we might have a different system in place sometime, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that? Um, well, uh, for one thing, memory... I don't make it because my brain's not working at all. Because the fuel isn't there, yeah, sure. That would be my guess. I don't know for sure, yeah. Um, I don't know. As far, yes, as far as I know, uh, for Doug, I don't know about the guy in Olympia, uh, Doug Bruce, his, um, the acquaintances that he had prior said that he, he was a different person. 
beforehand, he tended to be much more cynical, sort of um, maybe sarcastic. And afterwards, he, it's almost like, you know, he, it's sort of like he became uh, full of awe and wonder. You know, he essentially, you know, he's learning everything for the first time. He's seeing a sunset for the first time. He's seeing, you know, flowers, animals, um, you know, the beauty in the world for the first time. And he sort of has that um, childlike sense of um, uh, awe and wonder. And so, in a lot of ways, some of them said he was a nicer person afterwards than he was before, yeah. Uh, in some cases, the fugue will, in some cases, a dissociative fugue will break and the person will suddenly or maybe even gradually recover the memory of their prior existence. And by this time, uh, in, in some of these extreme cases, they may have already formed a new life somewhere. They may have already gotten married, had children, and they suddenly remember, oh, I have a wife and children somewhere else, right? And it can be um, extraordinarily disturbing. In, in Doug Bruce's case, I think they follow him for two or three years, and uh, uh, up till that point, as far as I know, till now, he hasn't uh, recovered those memories. Why is the, sorry, why is the okay. memory so selective? I mean, they remember all of their language. He knows that there's such a thing as a police force that he can go and turn Okay, so why, for example, would he remember language? So think about procedural memory uh, versus, um, you know, episodic or semantic memory. Yeah. Um, I don't know about um, police, how that, um, you know, how he might have known that the police was a good thing to go to. Uh, it may have been, uh, for example, I know that the fellow in um, Denver, he tried for six hours to get people on the street to help him. You know, he said, he would tell people, you know, I don't, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I am. Can you help me? And they would just walk away, right? Um, because we're so, you know, especially if you live in an urban area, you may become very um, um, accustomed to sort of bizarre behavior and kind of just think somebody's drunk or on drugs or something. Uh, and so he, in that case, he had to actually be brought to a hospital. He didn't know how to get to one, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Brian, question? It's extraordinary. Very disturbing. And considering that was yeah. later that actually occurred, you can only imagine how it, how terrifying. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. All the people that I've seen who have gone through this are very, very um, distraught. Yeah. Hey, lose your identity. Think of how much that comprises who you are, really, and so much of it is tied into your memory of who you have the been. The born identity. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about um, something that's kind of important, which is uh, memory distortions. So uh, one of the things that um, we talk about in terms of memory distortion is the idea that we have schemas. Um, schemas are like frameworks that we build for what we expect in our environment. What we've been exposed to in the past helps guide what we expect to be exposed to in the future, right? Um, and so um, 
The thing is that schemas influence all kinds of cognitive processes. They influence perceptions, right? So uh, if I show you an ambiguous stimuli, and we'll do this later when we talk about sensation and perception, if I show you an ambiguous stimuli, you will try to make sense out of that. You'll try to impose a pattern or order on it based on what you've experienced before. And um, in that way, it influences uh, what we see and then what we encode into memory, but it also influences what we retrieve. So I activated a schema for you of sleep when I gave you that list of words last time. And I asked you if sleep was in that list of words and you said yes, right? So if we activate these schemas for someone, it can actually distort the memories that they recover, or that they, I'm sorry, that they recall. Um, and uh, this is uh, illustrated strongly by something called the uh, misinformation effect. Uh, Elizabeth Loftus is one of the main researchers in distortions and fabrications of memory. And she ran a series of experiments. One of them had to do with um, uh, telling someone that they had been lost in a mall when they were five years old. And what they, what they will do when they try to do one of these uh, experiments is they'll get someone, you know, someone that they know perhaps to go along with it. And the person will come in and talk to the subject and say, hey, remember all the good times we had when we were younger? You know, remember when we went to Disney World and all that? They said, remember the time you got lost in the mall? And the subject will say, um, no. And the person, the confederate who's working with the experimental will say, yeah, yeah, remember you got lost in the mall and you were five years old? Don't you remember when you were five at the mall? And the person will say, well, I kind of remember being at the mall when I was five. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got lost in the mall. And when mom found out, she was really upset. But then we had cake afterwards. And the person says, I do kind of remember having cake and mom, when mom was upset. Yeah. And so um, through this process of kind of questioning and kind of providing more and more details, a person can actually form a memory for something that doesn't even exist. And uh, afterwards, when we tell the person, you know what? Uh, this is actually an experiment. Um, you were never lost in the mall. We actually um, created that situation. And the person will say, no, I remember being lost in the mall. Yeah. So very, very vivid, very strong memories can be um, created. Um, the question is, how, can, how are we going to be able to differentiate between um, true, mem true memories and false memories. Um, again, very difficult to do. Um, we get uh, differing results when we look, for example, using neuro scans, so functional MRIs, um, when we do all kinds of testing on people. Um, it's very difficult to tell the difference between memories that we form as a, as a result of misinformation and memories that were made um, in reality. So that kind of illustrates how difficult it is for us to sort out the differences then, right, um, between what memories we make. This came up. Uh, Elizabeth Loftus um, came to prominence in this research when there were a bunch of cases, like I think they were in the earlier mid-1990s, where uh, children, through the help of a therapist, recovered memories of child abuse uh, when they were very young, like when they were two or three years old or four years old. And um, 
our memory for those periods is typically very bad, and I'll talk about why in a second. But um, here's what happens. Um, these people then sued the parents in court uh, for um, you know, abusing them when they were children. And so the parents get dragged into court, and uh, then the therapists come in. And so the question for the court was, is it possible, and the, de you know, the defense argument was, uh, that the therapists may actually create a memory for an event that didn't actually happen. And uh, so that was the question for the, from the court, and Elizabeth Loftus's research shows pretty convincingly that we can um, create some very vivid memories uh, depending on the kinds of information, the kinds of questions uh, that we ask. And that's a reason that um, uh, when police do interrogations, they have to be very careful in the kinds of questions they ask, not to create a memory for something that didn't actually happen or to distort a memory for something that did happen. Now that doesn't mean that um, all of these cases were unfounded. Some of them undoubtedly were, uh, but, um, but it really um, uh, illustrates the importance of using good protocols when you're working with someone in that kind of a therapeutic relationship. So. But most of you um, probably can't remember very early in life. Here's my friend Calvin again. You know what's weird? I don't remember much of anything until I was three years old. Half of my life is a complete blank. I must have been brainwashed. Good heavens, what kind of sicko would brainwash an infant? And what did I know that someone wanted me to forget? Boy, am I mysterious. Um, and Hobbes says, I seem to recall you spent most of the time burping up. Um, so um, why is our memory for childhood so bad? Most of us can remember back to maybe four. A few of us will go back to three. Relatively rare that we'll go back to two or one and a half. Um, the um, questions that come up for this are brain development. Is it that our hippocampus, for example, doesn't develop well enough that we can store memories? Uh, the evidence is not in favor of that. The evidence, in fact, indicates that we can store memory um, in utero while we're in, in the womb. We can uh, condition a baby to a particular sound when they're in the uterus. And shortly after birth, when we play that sound, we get a response from the child. So um, we do think that there's some memory going on very early in life. And the current model is the idea that when we're children, we see the world from a very different perspective than when we're adults. Um, and there's a fundamental shift in development, and we'll talk about this when we talk about development, but there's a fundamental shift where we stop seeing the world only from our perspective, what we call the very egocentric perspective, and we begin taking the perspective of other people, and we begin understanding that we aren't the center of the universe, and that not everybody has the same experience as we do, that other people have their own consciousness, their own minds. And the idea here is that that forms a very fundamental shift in our schema for understanding our environment and our world. And that if the schema shifts enough that um, you can't recall information that was formed using a prior schema, the schema has such an influence on recall that, um, that you can't get to those memories uh, because um, you're just seeing the world from such a different perspective. So um, that's probably the case for, uh, uh, for, why, for why we can't remember so early in life.
Um, any quick questions uh, before we uh, get to the exam stuff? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And you know, sort of. So some of the people go, "Well, what kind of traumatic event occurred that you can't remember early in your life?" Right. It's probably unlikely. It's. Yeah, it's more likely that it's uh, a shift in schemas. So is it that without schemas, you have no memory? Um, actually, 